Conversations on the Margins is a Go Loud original podcast. The following episode contains strong language, mentions of drug use, violence and suicide. Discretion is advised. Now there's nothing in that life but anguish and pain. Drug use and crime will drive you insane. You don't end up in the grave or alone in the cell. You definitely end up going to hell. This episode is called Who Will Take Responsibility? Niall has been in prison for most of his adult life and when we sat down to have a conversation it didn't take me long to realise that Niall had a lot of important things to say not any more important than what anyone else is saying but when someone has been there so long and has been reflecting on the system and is as articulate and as, as powerful in the delivery of that I felt it was important because it really encapsulates a lot of the issues that the lads have experienced as well so this episode it's just me and Niall And I think it's important that we hear this full conversation in its entirety. And later on, we'll hear from the IPRT following on from listening to the governor. And I think Niall's contribution blends really well with those big policy questions. Niall is an artist. He's a muralist. He has a lot to give any community. When we listen to him talk us through his art projects, his skills are evident. Yet Niall has no idea when he'll be released. In a later episode, we hear from Sarah Jane from the IPRT, which is the Irish Penal Reform Trust, on the problems of sentence management. And Niall captures the reality of this succinctly. What strikes me most about Niall is his passion, even in its restrictions. He is determined to address the policy issues that affect any man like himself, especially the young people in the general population that are impacted by the neglect of communities like his. Like other contributors, Niall has desires to help to give and to give the opportunity, he is determined to do this. Reflecting on this conversation, I return to the idea that lives like his is putting dirty dishes through a dirty dishwasher and expecting them come out clean. Niall, I'd say he's average height and looks really, really young actually, but actually is in his 30s. And I think if you didn't know what age he was, you definitely would have said he was younger just in terms of looking at him. But definitely not when he spoke, because he spoke with a knowledge and a wisdom and a maturity that uh, was actually just quite powerful. And he spoke to me in a way that he was confident in what he was saying, that he knew what people need to do to be able to change society. He, in his presence with me, was very welcoming. But when he starts speaking, you can really tell he wants to be heard. He wants society to listen to what's going on. And there was something powerful about his contribution, but also powerful about his presence. So... um. A single mother, welfare, bad situation in the house financially. Um, The house was actually really bad. For someone growing up in, I would have been a teenager, 13 in 2000. So by that time, Ireland would have been going through a boom, starting a boom. But when I look back now, the amount of friends of mine who are in really bad situations financially 
And we had a weird situation because my dad had bought the house, but had left. It gave me mam no right to get out and fix that broke in the house. So when things were broke, they were just broke. Um, I left school then for about four months when I was, I'd say in fourth or fifth class in primary. They sent the social welfare out to the house. They told my mum, and I'll never forget the words, this house is in fifth for stray dogs. But then they just left and there was nothing done about it. And I thought, right, maybe we fell through the cracks. But three out of the five lads I grew up with were in the same situation. And it's strange because we weren't told just staunch it out, get your leaving cert, get a degree. We were told, look, get your junior cert, get a trade. Get a junior cert, get a trade. Out of the five of us, one of us got that junior cert. One's dead, two ended up in prison, and one only ended up getting a mortgage, getting married, having a normal so-called life. So I think when you hit 14 and you start hanging around with the opposite sex then, the pressures that you put under because of the clothes and the house you grow up in and, you know, you don't want to be that, that person that has nothing, especially if there's a girl you like or someone you like. So just the pressure is unbelievable. So then you start doing the wrong things with the wrong people because you get financially rewarded. Now, I worked when I was 13, I got my first job in Unique Menswear in town. And I was getting £140 a week. But for the work that needed to be done in the house, that just wasn't going to cut it. So before I knew it then, I was involved in the drug trade. But when someone hands you an envelope with a grand or two in it, and you're thinking, well, we were having to work for months for that. It's so much money at that age yeah. and in that situation, isn't it? Like it's Now, people say you have a choice, but at 14, with the pressures you're under, especially when you start hanging around with the opposite sex and stuff like that, the choice is made for you. And that's just the society we live in because we're built that way to have things, to be normal and stuff like that. And, and society has set that standard, yeah. but hasn't created the ways to be able to successfully get that in a way that's legitimate. Exactly. So the police and the services only start noticing you when you're making a certain amount of money. But by that stage, it's too late. And it's not like they weren't aware of the situation. So I was selling drugs. There was a party on the next night. Lads had shown me the place we were going to have the party. I ended up getting in a fight and I ended up taking someone's life that way. Um, I was 20. He was 21. And I've been in jail ever since. And such young men, like, I mean, yeah. nobody's an adult, especially when you grow up in an area where you don't have access to, like, increasing your education and stuff. You mature very late, so your yeah. brain isn't completely even developed that stage, and then you're left with that situation defining forevermore. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and the thing that always, I suppose, makes me smile is the reoccurring thing I always hear is, 
take responsibility, take responsibility, take responsibility. But who takes responsibility for places like Ballyferma? Who takes responsibility for the situation in the prison system? Like, if you have a broken pee on a broken plate, you're not going to fix the broken pee. You replace the plate. You know what I mean? Like, I feel that putting the situation in the prison system is putting dirty dishes to a broken dishwasher and expecting them to come out clean. Wow. It just doesn't work. And the definition of madness is doing the same thing, hoping that the outcome is going to be different. What do you think could be done? How, how should we be doing things? I think there needs to be more opportunity and focus on release. I think there's plenty of people out there now that are looking for government funds to set up businesses. And I think that if they could employ maybe 20% of the prison populations, then they get tax credits or they get initiatives. Some sort of incentive. From the government. It saves the government then on social welfare, on housing, on all that. And it's structure. Structure and a bit of self-worth. I've seen it myself in prison. Most lads in prison aren't given praise. Don't have much schooling. So they don't get it from the teachers. The family situation usually isn't the best. So they don't get it there. But I've seen programmes that lads take part in. And from a small bit of praise, it really encourages them to do better. And they surprise themselves. Now, if a man can get out of jail into a full-time employment and he feels that he's earning his own money, that he can go out, enjoy himself on the weekends, not look over his shoulder, get a partner, that's all a man wants. That's what most of them want. But they're not given that opportunity. And especially with a criminal record, you're definitely not getting that opportunity. So I think more needs to be done between prison and employment. And I think that's where the government needs to step in. I think you're right. I mean, this is something that I speak about a lot um, and have done for a long time. And that bridge between, if we say we have a, a rehabilitative system, in quotes, um, in the prison system, um, that if that doesn't um, be received when you leave, well, then that it's not true to say that you have a rehabilitative system when you're in here if society then will never allow you to progress and move on. So when you leave here, you enter a whole nother level of punishment and rejection and complete refusal in terms of, you know, accessing a course or traveling or, you know, getting volunteering even, you know, you're guarded vetted to volunteer on your son's football team and, and you're having to tell them what you did 20 years ago and it just follows you around. But you said something really important there around the idea of praise. Yeah. So you've been here a long time now. Can you remember the first time that you received praise? Was that an important moment? Yeah. 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 I had... I do a bit of art and I was asked to do murals. Now, I've lost friends outside to suicide, family members too. Instead of doing like just a mural on the wall, because I've done murals on walls and 10 years later they're still there, they're outdated now, but they're on the wall. I said, There's, there was a new part of the prison built and there was a hallway that connects the two of them. And I said, let me open it as an art gallery and we'll pour it around mental health. So how you turn the negative into a positive in prison. 
So changing your frame. Changing it. And it could be anything. It could be a poem. It could be a song lyric. It could be colour. It could be shapes. It could be a proper piece of, proper piece of art. Um, but let me put it out to people. That way then you get a good idea of what's going on in people's moments, especially lock-up people, because when you're on lock-up or people on lock-up, the longer they're on lock-up, the more affected they get by lock-up. The more terrified they are to come back into the general population, the more... So somebody that wouldn't know what lock-up is, do you want to... 23 hours a day in the cell. Um, they tend not to mix with general population and stuff like that. But then that causes... Locking someone in a room for that long is going to cause mental health problems. Like, just coming to prison, you get mental health problems. And that's not me just pulling that out of the air. The World Health Organization say, yeah, six times more likely to have a suicidal thought incarcerated. Um, so we opened it up and I have to say, lads in jail are really good when it comes to charity and especially children's charity and stuff like that. So what we done was we said we'd give them boards, two foot by four foot or two foot by two foot boards and we'd give them the paint and the brushes they needed. As long as they were okayed by their class officer, you could get the materials into your cell and you could do it. And how we spun it was that it was for charity and the thing is how you turn a negative into a positive. So that way, lads got to say what they needed to say off their chest. So it doesn't matter about the art or anything like that. They still got to say what they needed to say off their chest. And just by getting it out there, it helps. Problem solved and all, a problem half this, problem solved and all that. And then they had the blanket of saying it was for charity. So that's why they were doing it. So that's all cover. covered them. We got 70 pieces on the first one. Um, everyone took part. We, the psychology, the probation, the... Leash Down Syndrome gave us a piece, which was beautiful. Um, the teachers, governors, and I think maybe 50 from the prisoners. Um, that was something I felt really proud of. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's so much in that. Mm. And then you can change it all the time. Because it was done on boards, you can... Because it's a revolving door prison. Yeah. So you can take some down, change them. I think all the negative spaces in prison should be filled by prisoners' art. But even being able to recognise that somebody might need cover to express themselves, you know? Like, that's, like, there's so many people outside of here that try and work in communities and don't understand young men. So they, they're very well-intentioned, like youth workers and stuff, and they come into communities. But when I listen to you, I explain, well, that's what community needs, right? So, like, our youth work or any sort of work like that is to someone to understand that for a man to express himself through art, uh, through therapy, through just being honest, it's it's really difficult, you yeah. know? So finding a vehicle to do that is... Yeah. And especially in here, when it's such a macho environment. Mm. But it is getting better now, I have to say. The younger generations do understand a lot more that... I think the more people are affected by things like suicide and all, and that's final. I think people then understand, hang on a minute, we should be talking. And I think the next generations are doing that a lot more. So you've seen them differences while you've been here in terms yeah. of the different generations yeah. that are coming yeah. through. I remember a lad who was in it longer than me. Um, back when I first came in, all the lifers would have put the younger lifers wide on 
what to do and how to do things. But I remember when my man passed away, a lad who had been in a, a few years more than me told me, oh, no, don't cry in front of him. That's that's me dead mad now, like. But if that's not that worth was, crying about, what is? That was his generation. Mm-hmm. Do you get me? Mm-hmm. So always, that always stuck with me. Do you mind talking to me? What it's like to lose a parent while you're in here? <sighs> Only if you're comfortable. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. I remember, um, I got a visit on Friday. She was down with me. Um, she got really upset. I think people know when the time is coming. But she got really upset and she said, I don't know when I'm going to see you again, son. Now, her and my father are um, separated a long time. And I says, don't be silly. Dad will bring you down more now. And I, my dad was there. I says, will you start bringing her down a bit more and stuff like that? He said, yeah. So she got really upset and I says, right, look. I says, um, take her home, dad. I'm going to cut the visit short. I said, she's getting too upset. And I remember I jumped the counter and hooked her. And I jumped back over. That was Friday at three o'clock. Saturday morning, 10 to 8, just before we opened for breakfast. The ACO and the, the priest opened my door. And he said, look, I'm sorry to say, um, your man passed away this morning. He said, look, we're going to open the door in 10 minutes for breakfast. So just get yourself together. I remember, he woke me up out of my sleep. I remember just sitting there thinking, he just fucking tell me my man's dead. She was only down yesterday, like, heart failure. So I got to see her up in the ICU. Um, but I remember being handcuffed to the bed. And I don't know why they done that, because there's two doors in the ICU. You go through one door, you have to stay in the middle of the two doors. One has to close before the second one opens. There's no windows. So I remember just holding the hand because I couldn't hug her. Um, Your both hands were handcuffed to the bed? No, just one, one hand, hand was handcuffed to the bed. But I couldn't. You couldn't move. Do you get me? So yeah, I, I, I just it. held her hand. Um, I talked to her. I said all the things I needed to say. And they took me off. They took me back home, back to the the jail. And I said, am I going to get the funeral or anything like that? And he said, no. You're not, after getting your sentence too long. He said, it'd be too emotionally charged. He said, but I'll tell you what we will do. We'll get you straight up to the grave afterwards. I said, OK. So then a week after the funeral, I said, can I go up to the grave? He said, look, would you not give us six months? Let the headstone go up and all. Because she was the first one in the grave. Yeah. Let the headstone go up and all. It'll be nice for you then. I said, OK, grand. Four and a half years later, I had to have a run amok on the landing. And I ran amok on the landing, and then I got up that Sunday. There's nothing really around bereavement in here. And the worst situation is that is my immediate family. There's lads there who are raised by their nanny, raised by aunties, raised by other people. But if they're not immediate family, you get nothing. Nothing. So there's a lot to do around bereavement. Um, They will offer you like counselling sessions, a psychologist. But you could be on a waiting list for 12 months. Do you get me? How hard is it to keep your head in here when there's stuff going on? Yeah. It, it, I would have been pretty anti-drug coming to jail. Would have trained a lot. Anti-drug. First, first year I did my junior cert. Second I did my leaving. Then I did the bronze, silver and gold, Gashke. 
I did the Red Cross. But I was constantly keeping myself busy. But then when I had it all done, I was still only in maybe six years. That's when it hit me. And I went from being anti-drug to taking all sorts of drugs. And they knew, they watched me collapse like that, deteriorate. And um, yeah, they just saw it. Left you, I suppose. The first, when I came in, you were sort of just left to your own devices until your first parole came. And then you were told to start doing things. But if it wasn't for other lifers telling me what I should be doing. So you just look after each other in terms yeah. of, yeah. But then there's other lads who, like, see, this is the thing. When you're sick or mentally unstable, you don't realise you're sick. You don't realise you're having a mental breakdown. You're just due to you. And it's like, they're just doing their jobs. I think they forget sometimes that they're working with humans. Now, I worked as a, a factory worker outside. I didn't think of the stock on the, the table when I went home. Wow, that's some parallel you have to draw in my head there. Like, but, like just, but just comparing yourself, like, in, in a sense, stock. But that's what it is. Yeah. And I think sometimes people forget that. They forget that it's human beings. And especially when you've been convicted of killing or murder, automatically you're not allowed to fail. Like... I'm still someone's son, I'm still someone's uncle, I'm still someone's brother. I still feel lost, I still feel love, I still feel all these things. Mm. We're all many things. But it's like you're not allowed mm. or something like that. And so if that's the point, if that's the case, then just bring back hanging. Do you know what I mean? Like, it'd be more humane. You said something there a minute ago when you were talking about um, when you were leaving your mum, when you went to see her... Um, when you were handcuffed to the bed and you were about to say, and then they brought me back home yeah. and then you stopped yourself yeah. and you tried to replace the word home yeah. with the jail. Yeah. I'm just wondering, I'm, I'm, it kind of struck me like when a place like this, it's someone's workplace, but you live here. Yeah. Um, do you ever let it seep into your mind and call this place home? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And actually, believe it or not, you know, like when you've been in reception all day or you go to court, you actually just be dying to get back to your cell, which is a crazy thing. Now, the first time I realised that maybe I was a bit starting to get institutionalised, I was actually in the block and um, I was waiting to go to the yard and I was at a gate and the officer was talking out of hope. Now, you're only in the block, you only get half an hour in the yard in the morning. And I remember I was standing at that gate and it had to be five, ten minutes. And I started getting really vexed and I went back up the oak and I fucking snapped at him. I said, you having a laugh? I said, 10 minutes. I said, I'm fucking waiting at that gate. You only got half an hour. He said, yeah, should I push the gate? I stood at an open gate. Wow. I was waiting on him to open it. I didn't even think of just doing that, to open it. Fucking gate was open all along. I really got annoyed at myself for that. How does that feel? I felt like a man's natural thing to do, or any person's natural thing to do, is when you come to a door to try to open it. But... You're waiting so long at gates for them to open it that the gate was just closed over, but it wasn't locked. If I had just pushed it, it would have opened. Do you think that's? Do you think there should be ways within prisons to promote a more independent style way of living that's still safe, right? Because obviously people won't be able to get a oh, prison. It's a prison. You need, you know, doors and locks and security and this and that. But for people that do leave here after, or any prison after a long time in prison, they do struggle. 
Yeah, and that's why I think the open prisons. But there's something now I've heard. I've uh, I've heard of lads that are in eighteen years plus and get kicked back from an open prison for having a mobile phone. And I would say to anyone out there, should you live your life today without a mobile phone? Why the undoing all that progress, mental and physical, because someone has a mobile phone in an open jail that's preparing you for life outside. Life outside is mobile phone now. Do you know what I mean? So I think for someone to get thrown back to a closed prison and undo all that progress over a mobile phone has to be looked at. And that's the thing, isn't it? There's no, there should be um, some sort of risk assessment going, well, is there, what's the risk of them after having the phone versus reversing all that positive work and being able to look at that in a logical way and say, actually, we're going to do more harm by sending him back rather than leaving him with the phone. So he has to go to the psychology again, probation again, parole again, all these things. And it's hard not now, to give they give you a Nokia, apparently, I've never been, but they give you a Nokia. Who has a Nokia 2310 out there nowadays? You can't live, most, even if you want to get your own business up and running and stuff like that, it's social media now. Your bills, everything is internet, is your mobile phone. So to prepare you for going home. So why are you not allowed Buy yourself a proper mobile phone in the open prison that you're going to take with you when you leave the open prison is beyond me. And sometimes I, I do get vexed because I totally understand people's view towards lifers. But what I don't think people understand is the amount of lifers that are screaming for rehabilitation and services and can't get them. And isn't that what everyone says they want? They want people to have gone into prison and to be able to then become functioning members of society. Yeah. Because the more people who are, you know, quote unquote, rehabilitated, yeah. the safer communities are. But if you don't allow someone to progress from a lifer into society, yeah. well, then you're actually doing the opposite. Yeah. You're actually making the community unsafe. Unsafe. What happens here goes out there. And this is where I feel frustrated because it's meant to be a structure. So for me, it was first parole at seven years. Didn't get called till nine. So then it's a three-year automatic knockback. So first didn't get called till nine. I got knocked back for two then. Didn't get called till 12. Now it was meant to be up last May and I still haven't been called. So if it's a structure that is set to rehabilitate me. Where are all these extra years going? What does that do to the structure of my rehabilitation? Mm. Where then we just feel it's not a structure and it doesn't matter about the so-called structure of rehabilitation. It's just you do long enough until you're not in the public memory anymore and then they let you out. Because if it is such a structure, then surely them dates should be kept and should be for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, I completely get that. So it's like the structure of time in here and rehabilitation has a process. You know, you have psychology, you have there's school, you see the reasons of all of that. And then there's this other thing that's happening that's completely outside of the structure that makes yeah. little sense. Yeah. And no. then you're trying to marry that in here yeah. with, well, I'm doing everything that's yeah. being asked of me, but there's something else happening that yeah. just doesn't fit into this yeah. structure that I'm in. 
Like you hear people, I've seen people on Claiborne and stuff like that saying he's due for his first parole at seven years. Your first parole, and nobody says this, and I don't know why they let the victims go through this. Your first parole is only an introduction to the parole board. You will never be released on your first parole. No lifer will ever be released on his first parole. It's literally an introduction to the parole board. To say, how are you? You're starting the parole process now. We'll be in touch. We're going to give you stuff that you have to do. But you'll never be released on your first parole. It's impossible. You can't be released on your first parole. But victims who are hearing that you have parole after seven years. That's just your introduction to the parole board. You automatically get knocked back for three years on your first one. You get stuff you have to do. Your second one, you very rarely get released. No one ever gets released on the second one either. They'll give you other stuff to do and tell you, right, you have a chance of getting in the open prison now. But you never get that. But people, for some reason, haven't told victims this. And then you have people who actually are really trying to benefit themselves and... I asked to see, could I, I don't know if I should say this actually. You can say it and if you feel uncomfortable afterwards. I asked psychology before, could I get a visit with the victim's family? Because I felt I could say sorry till the cows came home to prowl and all that. But I felt his family, his mum, after losing my mum, I think I sort of realised, sort of, what I'd done, the severity of it, say. Um, I was still young, I was 22 at this age. Then my brother lost his son. And I seen what that done to him and the effect it had on my whole family. And then I sort of really realised then what I'd done. So I asked could I see the victim's family on a visit. I'll give them the option. The option, yeah. Because... I started thinking then about the court case again and again. And I was, I remember looking at that woman. I don't think she really cared about the technicalities of everything. She's just a woman who lost her son and she looked vacant when I think back now. Mm. And I was saying, she might think those questions only I can answer. I have to give her the option. If she wants to spit me face, she can spit me face. If she wants to give me a clatter, she can give me a clatter. But she has the option because I didn't, look, when you're that young, and I'm taking solicitor's advice, I was told, don't get up in the box. So I didn't. Technically, I actually never apologised. And I see that a lot, when victims say, never even apologised. But then when you, you couldn't because then there was a civil case, so you have to wait for the civil case to be out of the way. Then you're coming up for your first parole, do you think you're only going to deal for your first parole? Then you get in touch with your psychologist and all, and you say, yeah, will you try, oh, we'll try, but there's no actual system really yeah. for this to happen. But I mean, restorative justice is an important progression in the justice system. If victims and their families um, want that, obviously it's always it's within always their control there. and choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but there's not been many people hook her up. Yeah, but that's the thing, isn't it? It is something that you know, like I've been a victim of crime and I've been the perpetrator of yeah. crime, and um, as a and, and that's the thing about prison. Just because there's perpetrators of a crime in prison, they've also been victims. So they're, they're not a mutually exclusive group. <laughs> we're all victims and we're all perpetrators sometimes, you know, it's we're two things sometimes. And I know for me, um, I do believe in a restorative justice system. And I do believe in giving families and victims the opportunity, if they want it, 
and for the person who has committed the crime to be able to to have those conversations together if it's right and if it's facilitated in a, in a healthy way in a helpful way and um, that gives people the closure that they need and i think it is a very important conversation to have you know look it's easy to say fuck them that's going bags let them do this and that but we're not america and we will release them so either you rehabilitate them and work with them or you spent 80,000 a year or whatever it is on every lifer to stay in till 30 years and then throw them out with more problems. Because I know nobody grows up saying I want to be a killer or I want to be strung out or I want to be homeless. Situations are different in different areas. And if you don't have areas like Ballyferma and places like that, then you don't have areas like Blackrock and places like that. So, again, yes, I can take responsibility for what I'm doing, but can anyone take responsibility for the situations in Ballyferma, Moy Ross, Northside, places like this? Like, if you look at Ballyferma alone, you have five industrial estates around there, two prisons, a foy hospital, a foy clinic, and nobody, no kids get brought to court or anything like that for leaving school at 12 years of age. You're churned out to work in the factory cell or in the prison. Like, you're against, the deck is stacked against you from the start, like. Now, you can blame people that say, oh, but there's loads of other people from these areas that don't come to jail. Yeah, and they're lucky. But there's also loads who do. And it's concentrated. And the system that's here at the moment isn't working. Change it. And if you can't change it, privatise it and let them change it. But something has to give. Now, I know the pro changed last year. Mm. And I think that's a good thing. So, yeah, so tell me actually what you think of that. So are you talking about the fact now that it's moved from the minister's control into the parole board? Yeah, Yeah. because I couldn't believe that the Minister of Justice had that much power. Because every time crime rate went up, the goalpost was being moved for the lifers who were already in. Yes. So, oh, right, and so that's interesting. And in the mental yeah. health things that does. So when I came to jail, a life sentence was 14 years. Then things go bad in society, the government gets under pressure, every re-election, they up the life sentence, they up the punishment. Okay, so that's interesting. So I never thought of things like that. So what you're saying is, when a life sentences, sentence changes in the now, that it has a retrospective, um, so it, it changes life sentences that have already happened in the past, not just the ones that may yeah. happen from now. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's so very think, interesting. Yeah. You think well, after 14 years I, I could be released, then it goes up to 17 years. Now what if you're 12 years and just about there and you're preparing yourself for that and then it gets moved to 17, then it gets moved to 20, then it gets moved to 22. The mental torture that you're going through. And the same with this license. You're on license for the rest of your life. That's grand. And they don't use the word release. They use allowing you to serve your sentence in a community setting under these strict conditions. But that is so open for corruption. Yeah, who, who oversees that? And it's arbitrary. You know, depending where you're living. And there's no, like, there's not the, the GSOC for the, the incidents that are overlooked by that. But who overlooks 
Like, as I said, what's to stop it, please, man, that you piss off saying, oh, well, I found this on him or I've seen him doing this. And it keeps you in a relation, a negative relationship with the justice system anyway. It keeps you in the back of your mind. Mm. You're constantly stressed out. And that has to be some form of torture. To not have a definitive time and then you're always stressed out. You're, there's something always on your mind. The same in not having a release date. As I said, I could be doing all the right things now, but I still don't know if I have five year, two year, three year. You just don't know. So do you think about a life after here or a view? Of course. Yeah, you do. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And what, what do you hope for going forward? Right. I'm lucky. I'm, I'm young. My family still are there for me. And I'm very lucky with the family I have. Um, I can do art. And that is a universal thing. So I can hopefully set up my own business when I get out doing murals, doing kids' rooms, doing um, lads, pubs out their backs and stuff like that, you know, yeah. dens or whatever. Like, so I'm lucky. And I know for every person that won't employ me because I'm a lifer, there's 10 who will, yeah. you know. So I'm lucky. But then I see lads who are in their 50s and 60s, don't have family and... It is, it is. And again, like, not being able, the freedom of travel as a European citizen, you know, I can't. So when you get out here, basically, you feel like you're not a European citizen. You're not a citizen of Europe. You're not a citizen, full stop. Yeah. You're still serving your sentence, but in a community setting. Mm. How, like, and this is the thing that gets me, and I've heard so many men say, like, people who have done 20 years saying that jail is the easy part. The tricky shit starts when you get out. How do you get employment? How do you get a mortgage? How do you settle down and have a kid? When do you tell a girl that you're a convicted murderer? Am I going to be allowed um, to set up my own business? Insurance, everything will be against you. Like, learning all the silly things that could catch you out. Like, bin taxes. All these silly things. But that's a break of your licence. And then you go back in. And the thing is... So you're held no, with... Yeah. But there's no... Like, you could get... Uh, uh, just say you get caught with one gram of cocaine. Mm. That's maybe a 12-month charge normally. But if you break your licence... You have to go back to the parole system. So that could be a seven-year sentence. Mm. And that's the thing. So as a, the justice in that? As a person in the community, even though you've served your physical in-prison sentence yeah. for the crime that you've committed, yeah. when you're out here, you're held to a standard that yeah. nobody else is in terms exactly. of everyday life. So where's the, where's the law? Where's the law? If one gram of cocaine... Now, I know, right, it's breaking the law. But if it's a 12-month sentence, it's a 12-month sentence. I've served my sentence for the murder or for the killing. Why should I have to do 7 to 10 years for a 12-month sentence? Where's the law on that? Where's your human rights to be protected? Otherwise, as I said, hang us and be dumb with us. 
because it'd be more humane. And it could be something simple like not paying a bill or not paying a tax bill. Yeah, or, or your NCT or something. No TV license yeah. or something simple like yeah. that. But the punishment is so much harder for lifers. That's why there needs to be a structure and there needs to be a tariff. And why do we have to be so far behind other countries and other European countries? Like, we get fish every Friday because we're a Catholic country. But a life sentence married man can't have a conjugal visit with his wife. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. We've never really had that conversation in Ireland, haven't we, no? Oh, because of the Catholic Church. So, like, even just depriving someone of touch. We can be so forward with things like gay marriage and stuff like that, but then be so draconian with things like this. Yeah. And what you do you still think? See the stamp of the Catholic Church all over it. What do you think it does to people in prison not being able to have physical t- contact, whether it's sexual or whether it just be a hug with the people that they love or anyone in it's general? Instrumental. Your family and your loved ones are your probation when you get out, because they're the ones who keep you on track. Not the probation person who meets you once a month or whatever like that. We've stuck by it for twenty years. We're not going up again. We deserve better out of you. You know, we love you. We want you home. Simple as that. That's what keeps you out of jail. Your family connections. It's one of the most important parts. And I know they say they promote it, but they don't. Look at what has happened over the COVID. Now, all the restrictions were eased three weeks ago, but they haven't been eased by the IPS yet. Even though we're the same as the old folks' homes and all, we're a living government facility. Now, my father can go up and hug his mother in an old folks' home, but he has to wear a mask and can't touch me out there to hug me, do you get me? Mm. Like, they say they promote family supports and stuff like that, and they do to a degree, but there's so much more that could be could done. Could be done. And with the COVID, the mental health has been devastated in the prison system. But they won't take in any extra healthcare workers to deal with this mm. mental health. Because there's been a surge in mental health problems. Of course there has been. Like, having to choose which kid comes up and visits you. You have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. You tell the eight-year-old, your dad doesn't love you. Do you get me? How do you choose? How would you choose? If family is, like, these are small things. There has to be some give and take with them, but there's not. Like, if someone says, I'm his wife and I have two children, that eight and five, you can't bring the two of them up. Whereas common sense would say, right. They're a family unit. And there's two of them. Who do you get the babies? Who do you, who do you choose? There has to be some give and take. You can't just say that family is the way forward and then not do anything to provide it. And the mental health, there should be some extra mental health workers, even if it's on a six-month basis or a 12-month basis, just to touch base with long-termers or people who are struggling. And you know who are struggling. Class officers know who are struggling. But again, you don't think it's stuck when you're at home. Yeah. No, I think um, I think everything you're touching on is, is so... It's so important, and I think... I think it's important that people like yourself and other people who have engaged in the process in the prison system to 
get to a stage where they're able to be so reflective and understand should be part of policy development in places like this about how it should look, not tokenistically, but in a real collaborative way. Yeah. You know, I think it could do so much because whether you're on the outside and you're going, you, you have a different view to me, right, yeah. on prisoners. I think everybody in society wants a safer in so- society. Of course. And we might go different. We might go about it in different ways to achieve that. But I feel that, you know, increasing the compassion, empathy and humanity to somebody in prison is what creates safer communities. And I think that that's very much what I'm getting from your conversation, which obviously I'm glad because it lines with everything that I think. But it is. But, it's, uh, it's not just aligning with what you think. Yeah, it's common yeah. sense. Common sense is common sense. Yeah. Now, if you tell a man, no, you can't do this, or no, it's this way, and you're staunch about it, he's just going to say, well, fuck them. Whereas if you show a man a bit of compassion and a bit of praise, that's what keeps him on the right track. That's what does it. And people say, oh, well, it's not individual. Right, so my father is really sick at the moment. Now, I've already lost my mammy. I said to the governor, can I have an extra visit? Because I was only getting 15-minute visits every two weeks. No, sure, you're the same as everyone else. I thought, what the fuck? Are you fucking serious? Like, I'm not the same as everyone else. And that's the problem. Some people treat us all the same. Like we're stock. individual. Like stock. But we're individual. We're individual problems, individual situations, individual needs. But if you treat everyone the same. Yeah. yeah. It's tricky. Look, I can't fix that. I'm just a prisoner. But it doesn't mean. I should stand by and watch these things. And I think, again, it is education. So many people's human rights are being violated every day in prison. And you just don't realise. And that's the thing, isn't it? If you don't even know what your rights are, are how do you know if they're that being they're being violated? violated? Yeah. yeah. I just think we're so... We're so forward-thinking in some things. And as a small island, you think we would be so ahead and we could be the change. But we're years behind Europe, we're years behind England, we're years behind everything. And that is down to the Catholic Church and how they ran the government and they read the Constitution and stuff. And maybe that worked a hundred years ago. But not anymore. And it has to be rewritten. And things have to change. Because, right, I made a mistake when I was 20. It's probably cost me my life. I deal with that. But if only I learn from my mistake, then the lessons learned die with me. Something has to change for the next generation. Why should younger men and kids, because everyone thinks they watch the Sarsang Redemption and we think all life is are 65 years of age. Don't know, they're 20. The majority of them are in their 20s, late teens, early 20s. Most lads that are in 15 to 20 years are in their 30s. Do you know what I mean? Like, why should I can deal with my life probably being wasted and over? But it really is a waste if the next generation do the same thing. Something has to change. And all it takes is one person, really, to say, no, actually, I'm going to go for a change. I'm going to run things differently. I'm going to do things differently.
It's mm. like they won't stick that neck out. Well, I think I just like I think I think we should end that conversation there because it's very much a call to change. And I think what you said is quite uh, profound in the sense that the learnings shouldn't die with you if if this has cost you your life and, and there's no point you just learning from your experience. And I think um, I think that's a theme that has come up throughout many of the conversations that I've had with some of, especially some of the, the, the lads in the tortoise that have been here a while, is that they actually want things to be different for other people. And I mean, if that's not collectiveness and giving and trying to use your own traumatic situation to change society, well, then I don't know what is. And I think it's important to leave the conversation on that call. Everyone who's in here and spends that amount of time in here do think about their victims. Of course they do. So I just feel that it's always they like to play the victims off the, the, the lifers. Kind of, it, be, it helps society and the prison system to see them as different or to pitch them against each other instead of trying to build bridges. Conversations on the Margins is a limited series podcast produced by me, Lynn Rowan, and the team at Alfonso Films in partnership with Go Loud and funded by the Rhone Trust with the support of the IPS and Governor Eddie Mullins. Sound on location was recorded by Dave Fannin and Rob Moore, with editing and sound design by Kieran O'Connor. The music used in this series is written and performed by students in the Educational Centre in Weefield Prison. I would also like to thank the principal and teachers in the Education Centre of Weefield Prison for facilitating this podcast and for all your support. Finally, and most importantly, I would like to thank each and every one of the men who sat down with me opened up and had a very real conversation. I know it wasn't easy, but I'm very grateful. You'll find Conversations on the Margins forced every Tuesday on the Go Loud app and all major podcast platforms too.